0: Wonderkind Research reveals exclusive insights from over 100 leading B2C e-commerce brands, suggesting we are on the cusp of a golden age of marketing. Head to wonderkind.co forward slash future commerce to get the
1: report. Hello, and welcome to Infinite Shelf, the human-centric retail podcast. I am your host, Ingrid Millman Cordy, and welcome to season three. And honestly, I'm super, super excited about season three in general, but the thing I'm the most excited about in season three is the introduction of Orchid Bertelsen. I'm so excited to have Orchid here because she brings such a level of expertise, such a great perspective, and she's also really fun to talk to, which is really important around here. So Orchid, thank you so much for joining us as the host for season three, and I just can't wait to get on this journey with you. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Ingrid. Yeah, I am. I'm super thrilled. I know we have so much to talk about. And just even in the planning stages of this, we get into very friendly debates, which I love, uh, because Mm -hmm. it gets a little boring if you just agree with each other all the time. Although we certainly have those moments where we yell at each other about how much we agree with each other, uh, (laughs) which I also love. Um, So I could not be more thrilled to be here and to go on this journey with you. And happy to share some background about myself and, and how I got here.
1: <laughs> Does that sound good to you, Ingrid? Oh, please. Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, great. Um, so I am currently the Chief Operating Officer at Common Thread Collective, which is a growth marketing agency. Uh, I've been here for about two years working across a lot of e-commerce clients, uh, whether it's clients who started in very traditional avenues in brick and mortar, going e-commerce or digitally native darlings. Uh, Prior to this, I spent about six years at Nestle USA as the head of digital innovation and strategy. And I would say my responsibilities kind of ran the gamut from building Toll House's first digital human using artificial intelligence, which apparently is a, is very relevant again. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: AI, really?
0: That's so strange. <laughs> yeah. And also standing out the D2C capabilities within Nestle. Uh, because as many of you may know, across a, I mean, the company is over 150 years old. And D2C, I would say, you know, Past 10 years uh, has really been setting the pace for how brands should be engaging with consumers digitally. Um, so while I was at Nestle, you know, I really became passionate about the e-commerce space and found myself gravitating towards small and medium businesses. Although one would argue that any company or any business smaller than Nestle is just every business. <laughs> right. But but that's really kind of what drove that change or that career change for me to go from large enterprise, very traditional, very retailer centric, in order to focus on e commerce.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because we sort of approached our careers in complete diametrically opposite directions, which I think has made for some very interesting conversations one-on-one that I hope that we'll be able to start sharing with the audience. But like I grew up in e-commerce first, D2C, always with like big companies. I worked at the Estee Lauder companies and so on. But um, so now I'm at Nestle, but the other side of Nestle, Nestle Health Science. And you would think we met through the Nestle network, but of course we didn't because that's how the world works. But um, I just find so many exciting and fun nuggets of perspective and information that we kind of like come together from our different angles um, and, and share. And so I'm just excited to go on this journey of season three with you, and I think if you heard the wrap-up for season two, we teased a little bit about what the season was going to be about, and the season is all about D to C, and what do we do with D to C now, right? We're a good 10 years into the D to C journey. We are no longer, or D to C is no longer. We are still very much the bells of the ball <laughs> Always, always, uh, or 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 the disruptors, however you want to look at it, I think sort of both things are, are true, and it's been really interesting because our careers and our time in the workforce, frankly, due to our our age, has been very parallel to D to C, and so there's a lot of commonality between sort of these aging millennials in the workforce and D to C and how it becomes a mature business and how do we continue to think about d2c and how do we evolve how do we evolve as people and people who are hopefully adding value to the people that we work with the companies that we help build and advise and how do we add value to you know the world and what do we what are we putting out into the world that makes sense that um, is beyond just thinking about things differently, right? Because it is important to always think about things differently, but I think there's a part that it starts going from disruptor phase into okay, now what? Like this maintenance phase, and there's so much to explore there, and I'm just excited about coming along that journey with you all and definitely Orchid on season three. So we're yeah. happy that you're here. Uh, same.
0: A hundred percent. I mean, even before Nestle, it was creative agency side and consulting side. And I would say to build on what you said about us coming up with or maturing with D2C, I would argue that's the same with social media.
1: I mean, we are,
0: I, I refuse, I reject the label geriatric millennial, but I will accept millennial old. And I think it's interesting that we have lived through so much of digital history, right? I remember being 10 years old and signing on to Prodigy, going online for the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. At that time, I probably shouldn't have done that unsupervised, but you know, hindsight. <laughs> and then, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and I are the same age. So Facebook really launched my sophomore year of college. And then, and so we grew up with that. And D2C, when you think about Warby Parker, I mean, Warby Parker, I want to say launched probably around 2010 because I was in New York at the time. And it was Warby Parker, Bonobos. My husband had an online shirt company. And I would say too that D2C has followed that um, Gartner hype cycle where there was peak hype cycle of cheap CPMs on Facebook. Oh, and there was a lot of arbitrage that was happening. And I think that if we fast forward to 2022, that was the year that nobody expected. The, the quote that I continue to use with my team to describe what happened in 2022 leading into this year is a Warren Buffett quote. And he says, no... You don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out.
1: Oh my God. Orchid, I literally said that to my team yesterday. <laughs> I swear. I'm not even kidding. Yesterday. And it's so true. And and I love you brought up such a valid, valid point about social media and, and D2C. And they're just inextricably linked. There is no D to C without social media, and they just would never have been. They complement each other; they enable each other to exist. One of them, you know, purchases all of their media from social media, and and is their biggest con- like per- c- customer, and then the other just allows them that that ability to go direct to consumer, like. You know, we were thinking about, I was talking about this with a colleague the other day where it used to be that the packaging team, right? Like the people who de- design the actual physical packaging for a product was the brand strategy team or like the marketing team, right? Because ultimately. The only way that you can talk about your product to a consumer was through your packaging on the shelf or through your packaging in a visual likely print ad, right? And so you really did have all of your all of your communication to a consumer through packaging, which made total sense. Enter in social media to your point and It's almost like I I liken it to the Wizard of Oz, right? So it was like this black and white world where it was like very simple. Like you have your packaging and that's everything. You know, you have to talk about your claims and you talk about your brand colors and your font and all of these really still very important things. But then you open up social media and all of these other ways to connect to your consumer directly. And it's like the color opens up in the world. And all of a sudden, these brands that are, one or two dimensional have to become three dimensional right you become like where you have to have a tone of voice are you coming through as a friend are you coming through as a a trusted advisor are you being a big sister or a you know authoritative figure in their life like there's there's all of these characteristics that start to become necessary for a brand when you have social media that enables both, right? It enables the ability for a brand to go direct to consumer because now you have this like connection that you need to foster and build with your consumers. And then you also have like, the social media piece where now you have access to actually tell those stories and, and tell those jokes if you want to tell a joke or give those statistics if that's your brand and, and it just completely changed the game. And that I think is one of the components, spoiler alert, that I think is is going to live on forever. Like that is one of the things that D2C that the floodgates that D2C or the Pandora's box, I should say, that D to C opened, that social media enabled that is just table stakes at this point.
0: Wunderkind surveyed over 100 senior marketing leaders at leading B2C brands to get their outlook on the current state of marketing. The in-depth CMO State of the Union report explores how unique challenges like the pandemic, supply chain issues, and the death of the cookie have forced CMOs to throw out their playbooks and reassess their priorities. Read the report to uncover insights and opportunities for your brand. You will gain a better understanding of the current marketing landscape and how it is evolving, giving you a valuable edge to inform your future marketing, product, and communication strategies. Head to wonderkindco forward slash future commerce to learn more. I'll add to that, that the combination of social media and D2C really inherently sparked the change in power dynamics between brand and consumer. Yes. Prior to social media, if you look at television, if you look at out of home, if you look at packaging, right? The brand was exactly what the brand told the consumer they were. It was very much push messaging. And now with social media and with D2C, I think that is a an interesting offer that D2C has to their consumers is to say, "Hey, Build with us, right? Let's get your feedback. Let's tighten the feedback loop. What do you think about the product? You've got the founder emailing the end consumer, right? I was just DMing on Instagram with a couple of founders this weekend, giving them feedback on their product. And I remember when uh, Gin Lane rebranded and pivoted to pattern brands. And they, they published this manifesto on Medium that I thought was fascinating. And one of the things that really jumped out to me was this idea of they weren't direct to consumer, they were direct with consumer. And oh, I think that's so incredibly powerful. And I think that that really summarizes very well, again, the power dynamic shift from brand to consumer. And then now this idea of doing things together, which can be very scary for brand owners.
1: Hundred percent. And and I would also say there's for sure a scary part and like a vulnerability part that um, owners need to have in order to be open and just like not always assume that they have all the answers and start to bring in their consumers. Right. But then there's even the scary part with consumers where sometimes and I think we're we're in this phase right now. This is truly like how I feel that consumers are actually kind of tired of having to contribute to to be part of it, right? Like I I don't I think they want to feel like they are connected and that that brand understands them, but I really think that we're in a place now where there's so much choice fatigue and this is just a result of like all of these disruptor brands coming in and all of these options now all of a sudden flooding the market after decades of just really being only like three or four options. Um and I think that consumers now, they don't want more choices. They want to be, um, and this is, of course, Scott Galloway says this, so I can't take credit, but I totally agree. But he says, you know, consumers don't want more choices. They want more confidence in their choices. And I think that's another piece that need is needed to be um considered by brands like what is that balance between making it feel like you have a dialogue with your consumers and you're connected to your consumers but ultimately you're the if you're making the you know greens powder that they take every day like I don't know what the hell I'm doing designing a greens powder. I want. I know that like I I probably need more greens in my life, and I and I want an easy way to do it in powder and, form. In powder form, and I and I want to make sure I just like get it in, and like everything else is a bonus from there, right? Yes. Um. And I don't. I don't. Ha- I don't know how much magnesium you need to put in that. Can you just like figure that out for me? But I'll tell you that like yes, I am probably not eating nearly enough fruits and vegetables I'm supposed to, even though I have. A, hopefully a very balanced diet. <laughs>
0: I eat like right, way too much pasta. Yeah, <laughs> I think, and I think that confidence will come from a couple of different sources. And so Andrea Hernandez of Snackshot, she she really coined the phrase curation as a service.
1: Mm. So when we
0: think about this idea of the infinite shelf, of infinite choice, yeah, and that confidence, I mean, there's a saying that people will believe absolute strangers on the internet over their friends and families and certainly <laughs> over brands. So you do see the Erewhon's of the world. You see Foxtrot. You see, I mean, even Goop, right? What they end up doing is they become this trusted voice in the category that they operate in. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it crosses categories, but they're very specific about their audience. So people lean in because that platform or that brand in and of itself has credibility. And they say, oh, Erewhon, like if Erewhon says it's good then I'm just going to buy whatever is in uh, whatever they tell me effectively. And so we do talk about this idea of infinite choice or the illusion of choice, because even as an operator and as a business owner, you can't afford to offer infinite choice. So how do you design your offerings in a way where the consumer feels like they can choose something that is speaks specifically to them, but at the end of the day, you still only have maybe a 10 product assortment.
1: Right. Right. It's that sort of like 80-20 rule where it's like 80% are like the tried and true things that you go to. And then the 20% is a little bit of that. Here's what's new and trending and let's try this together and kind of like jump into the deep end kind of thing. It's funny because the power of that trust used to live exclusively with retailers, right? So you would like go to Target and you would go, okay, this is available for purchase in Target or in Costco. Costco is like the... I trust both with my life. So you're you're
0: speaking my love language.
1: (laughs) Don't even... Brian is like salivating right now hearing me talk about Costco. Um, But so those two retailers, they are... They have... I would argue they've built their business on having incredibly savvy buyers, incredibly savvy um, people who you know stock their shelves and, and design what their their store experiences look like. And those that power is still incredibly strong and and hot, right? Like I know if I can go to go to Costco, that Kirkland signature brand, like they're giving me Grey Goose Vodka. They say Kirkland Signature on the bottle, but I know it's private label Grey Goose. (laughs) And so the savvy consumers are always going to know that. But my point is that power has always been with retailers. It's very interesting to now see, I think, enabled by the ethos of D2C, maybe not like the business constructs of what D2C is as like a single channel, but the ethos of of D2C being, we are one brand and we are going to be incredibly narrowly focused on this audience this type of consumer like thinking about the goop consumer that you brought up that's that brings a very very specific human into mind and that person is going to be serviced by this particular brand and then um, it used like I said it used to be retailers and now it's brands and I think that power shift or the ability to shift that power is, magical if you can harness it if you can if you can do it.
0: and'm I'm, I'm excited to debate you on this Ooh. <laughs> because because I actually think that I, I agree with all of that and I do think the power dynamic is shifting back because of the barrier to entry is lower of yeah. something that looks and feels g2c. Yeah. And so I do think one of the biggest threats to G2c is private label. And I think that you see that with Target, right? Love Target. They have such amazing private label brands. And as moms, Mondo Llama is one of my favorite ones. And that is their kids crafts line. And they have all these little crafts packages for $5 or less. And Mondo Llama, it is private label. You would never think that by looking at how it is packaged, how it is designed. But they effectively launched overnight with you know in 200 I think 200 target stores and having you know the front page takeover of their app and I, so that power of scale yeah. is just really unrivaled I think
1: I agree I would say though that there is no mondo llama without the the foundations that the D2c brands created yes the yes, reason why it feels like it's so specific to your needs is because what Target does target you know I am a Target stan, so just to be clear. Me too. (laughs) Right, like, just to be very clear. But I'm about to say something that, you know, might not, if I work at Target, I'm going to, like, give me a side eye. But I I do, I genuinely feel this. They are not the innovators. Like, they're not the people who are going to disrupt, and they're not the people. They're, like, but their ears are to the ground. And so they're, like... I'm going to take these great ideas and I'm going to learn from what is happening in popular culture, what brands are resonating with mothers, with parents, with, you know, families. And then I'm going to sort of distill that magic into these very, very tangible things, whether it's like their packaging or their, their way that they, you know, their fonts or all of the branding things, they're brilliant at doing that and not making it Feel cheesy or made up or like secondary, right? Which I think is the problem with a lot of like private label brands. Um, it just feels cheaper. And Target was like, "Well, why do we have to do that? Why do we have to dumb down our private label brands? Why don't we just make them as cool and rad and 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 like D 2 C esque as the D to C brands themselves?" And I just applaud them for that. But I don't think they're ever the innovators. So I think they it's it's this. St- combination they need d to c and then d to c needs them to scale
0: yeah i agree and i think part of it is that large companies they don't there is no reward to be an innovator in a niche space what they where their strength is is to be a fast follow they can take a good idea and by the time that it reaches a large enough audience or a large enough audience adoption they can just put massive scale behind it and so the way i think about it is that if we were to uh title our episodes like Star Wars episodes, I think it's a return of private label because it's not your mom's private label, right? Mm-hmm. I think Kirkland is, is an interesting case study in and of itself, which we can talk about in a future episode. But the fact that Costco sells Kirkland branded sweatshirts, and I
1: almost got one, by the way. I saw one on someone like very fashionable the other day, and I was oh, like, yeah. this, is, this is so smart on them. Yes. Yes. So I, I actually need to buy it online. It wasn't
0: in Costco. And so there's one that has, um, it's a it's a sweatshirt with Kirkland embroidered across it. And then there was another one that just had little Costco logos repeating all over the sweatshirt. It was like $21. I was like, of course I'm going to do this. I'm a Costco stand. Is so, really even
1: Costco that's selling it though, or are there third parties? No, are- Costco is oh, selling it. It's okay, on their okay. site.
0: It's really... <laughs> quite remarkable, although I'm sure you can go on um, any of those other sites and and get a knockoff one. But I do think, you know, I'm excited to continue to explore this idea of brand, of brand interpretation. And I think in terms of power dynamics in in this new world where we don't have this laser focus on D2C, like D2C does not equal e-commerce. D2C is a subset of that and I think that what we're seeing, too, is a lot of these D2C purists, you know, kind of growing up and understanding that the world is far bigger, which is why a lot of the conversations, it feels like we're in Groundhog's Day, right? When we talk about MMM or attribution um, or, you know, awareness awareness drivers where you can't really measure it or tie it to conversion, right? All all angles of attribution that I think large companies have been battling for decades and it's just interesting that the D2C purists are kind of, you know, quote-unquote rediscovering that.
1: It's it is fascinating to me and I think that D2C ultimately it started as a channel, right? So it was like you had your Website, probably on Shopify, um, if you were lucky enough to start when they were starting, right? Because otherwise it was very difficult, but you still did that. And it was a place to sell direct to consumer. And then what happened was, I think, I don't think they realized this at the time, but they were creating the blueprint for what a modern brand activation looks like. Right. And so consumers went to Glossier or Werby Parker or Bonobos and they learned, oh, I could have a relationship like this with a brand. And it kind of opened up this this world where and I'll use you know it's the Pandora's Box thing again, where it became Slowly over time, I'd say it took about 10 years to get there, but now they're kind of like looking at everything in their lives as something that represents who they are on this much deeper level. And so it graduated to not just being a sales channel, but being like a brand ethos or a marketing strategy that. And and I'll be the first person to admit how how important that is, while at the same time, out of the other end of my mouth, I'm gonna say not every brand needs to like touch your heart. Like my, my, my window cleaner, like my Windex or whatever, like I don't actually I don't need that to be an extension of who I am as a human being. Like I just need, <laughs> well, <laughs> I need to clean my windows.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that along with the rise of D2C and this idea that You can get what you want immediately in the way that you want it. And this increased focus on what the digital shopping experience is, that also happened at the time of like the erosion of the in-store experience. Yes. And so I think that D2C actually gained much more traction because soon that experience just outshine the in-store in-store shopper experience because how many times you go into a store right you have to, you're going to a mall likely and you're fighting for parking spaces you're walking forever you don't know where the store is you go in and there's a limited offering because there's again infinite shelf online you have a much larger offering and so you go in store you don't find the thing that you want or you find the thing that you want and they don't have your size. Right. And so I do think like those things happen simultaneously to create this perfect storm. Yeah. And so over the last five years, I would say that retailers are also kind of rethinking what that in-store experience needs to feel like and look like as an, and using digital as an extension of it or yeah. an enhancement.
1: The smart ones are yes, yes. I would agree. <laughs> um, and and again, like we keep saying this word, and it's so played out, and I kind of hate continuously saying it. But the word disruption, when you really think about it, you can only disrupt something that is prime for disruption, right? So it basically is is a reflection to your point of retailers physical retailers and the more traditional retailers that have been around for 50, 100 years that have been getting away, frankly, with not thinking about their consumers and not improving the experience or the product and actually kind of the opposite in the chase for expanded profitability. They've actually decreased, right? So there's less. So think about the, the years, the few years before D to C really, really became a thing. You walked into like that mall experience that you were saying and like the hairs on my like arms sit up because it's so icky. Like the people that they hired were not trained properly and not qualified to talk about the products. If you had actual questions, God help you. And it was like then you bought, let's say you bought and you invested in like a cashmere sweater or or something like that. It was nowhere near the quality that it was the years prior, right? And so it was this combination of like this really stale in-store experience, this really stale brands, and these brands that are trying to find efficiencies. So they're going offshore with their with their manufacturing, they're finding different materials, everything starts to become a blend versus like 100% you know, cashmere or or wool or whatever um, and all of those things. And then you have all these younger brands that are like, Ugh, I'm so tired of and every every single founder story is that exact same story, like the Warby Parker story. Yep. Uh, why do glasses need to cost $600? Well, Casper. Do, Casper, the, the mattress. <laughs> yeah, it's like all of them and and those were real consumer problems. Like people never set out to go and and buy a mattress in a box. Like that wasn't a thing, but they were like, "Look, this is actually going to be faster, cheaper, smarter, better for you." And so they had this this go-to-market ethos that I think was necessary and ultimately as a response to the classical and traditional retailers, like just falling asleep at the wheel a little bit. And now I think everyone's waking up and I think the people that are going to have these more successful businesses, omni-channel going forward, are the ones that just are constantly innovating. They're making their in-store experience better. They're making their online presence better. They're improving their their products. And I think that's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I will blame the in-store experience on Abercrombie. I mean, remember (laughs) when we were in high school and my mom hated to go into the stores with me because it was so loud, so dark. They were pumping all the perfume through their vents. And to your point about customer service... Yeah, I mean, they, they, they weren't hired or trained, like the staff in-store, they weren't hired or trained to deliver customer service. They were there to look like models modeling the clothes. I think, in fact, they called them models. Yeah. And so, you know, that I think is really fascinating because they looked at in-store as a marketing tool as yeah. a way to reestablish the lifestyle that you are buying into rather than the $100 sweatshirt with Abercrombie and Fitch on top of it right yeah. and so that worked until it didn't and so i think even like the um the rise of the re rise i guess of Abercrombie in this new digital age but they had to fix their product i think that's a fascinating case study for us to look at as well but um, i do think like all of those things And what we're coming down from is the boom and the promise of D2C because a lot of those companies were floated by venture dollars when there was plenty of it. And so profitability wasn't a challenge. So they could continue to invest in things that didn't have an ROI for three years or five years, you know, payback period because everybody pointed at Amazon as, well, Amazon's not profitable. It's like, okay, well, that's missing the forest for the trees here. And so back to our Warren Buffett quote, the tide has receded. And so I think what you're seeing now is that the strongest, most holistic thinking brands will win when they view every channel as a lever that they can pull And I think the smartest business people who balance business and experience will win. But I think a lot of those folks who were very idealistic when it came to D.C., like they didn't have to have the financial discipline of running a business because they rode the wave of venture dollars and then also a boom cycle of everyone just having more money.
1: Totally, totally, and and I think so. Like a, a lot of our episodes are gonna f- are going to go into a lot of these much more deep conversations, right? So we have conversations talking about growth and like channel and acquisition strategy, and what does it all look like now with the landscape of social media changing and CPMS going up, and does Roas even matter anymore? And it's funny because all the like more traditional marketers are finally like knowing what ROAS means and you're like (laughs) using it and it's kind of like cringy now. We're like like, (laughs) M-E-R. It's, it's really, really fascinating. But like, so that conversation is coming up, um, growth versus profitability, just like real talk. Let's, what does that look like? How do we, how do we reconcile between those two? Is there a world in which those two live together? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Which we're
0: on different sides on. I don't know. I keep thinking because- you know, I think every CEO in 2021 was like, growth. And then they go back and they're like, no no, 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 profitable growth, right? <laughs> Not just top line revenue growth. And so you and I, like, I'm so excited to dive into that together. Totally. Because there's a part of my brain that thinks profitable growth is achievable. But then everything,
1: when I put my operator hat on, is like, ah, I think it's a choice. <laughs> I mean... I I think every, like the pe- the people who have listened to me from the beginning know that I I definitely think it's a choice. And so yes, these are all of the reasons I am unbelievably excited to go on this journey with you for season three. There's so much to talk about, unpack from you know the business side of it, profitability, the uh, venture and you know shareholder side of it. What does it look like? Exit strategies. Acquisition and retention, LTV, creative messaging. There's just there's just a lot to unpack, and I, I'm excited. And I also would really love for the audience to share in what they think, ask us questions, challenge us on our positions. Um, let's just let's have this be a dialogue. Because frankly. I would be the first to admit that none of us have the answers. I think we have some pretty experienced and educated assumptions and guesses based on all of the things that we've been exposed to, but I think it's definitely a dialogue that is worth having, is very, very timely, and I hope everyone will join us along the journey. Orchid, anything that you'd like to close with?
0: I was going to say, I have all the answers. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I have so many opinions. um, (laughs) And people who have worked with me before know that if I say I don't have an opinion, it's because I'm extremely disinterested. So you know, just opinions. there are no perfect answers, I think. And I think that a lot of our answers will feel dissatisfying, but marketers will understand because yeah. the answer will be, it depends. And oh, so I'm wow. really excited to go through the season and really just talk about the nuances of a lot of these things, because I think a lot of folks in the industry think that answers are very binary or black and white. And the reality right. is that when you are maturing along with D to C or social media is still evolving that you can only make decisions and have answers based on the information you have at the time. Yeah. But that may be irrelevant maybe five or 10 minutes from now. So totally. I'm excited to go on this journey with you. I'm excited to hear your opinions and your experience on these things because I want to pressure test a lot of these ideas that we have and and you know, obviously, you know, to your in- open invitation to the audience as well, because only when we come together and bring different angles or philosophies to this, can our own thinking become clearer and stronger? And so I'm really, really excited to go on this journey with you for season three of Infinite Shelf.
1: Amazing. We're super lucky to have you and see you guys soon. Thanks for joining us.